on Curbed. You know, I didn't I didn't watch for a long time. I'm sh- I'm, I'm kind of ashamed that I I didn't get on board sooner. Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly incredible. ashamed for you. <laughs> I am here with Blake J. Harris, and we are going to be talking about uh, his book, Console Wars, as well as now it's a, a documentary. So uh, various aspects of that, and maybe just a bunch of shit about old video games, too. <laughs> Blake, say hi. <laughs> uh, hi. I'm really uh, interested in talking about the various shit about retro gaming. But thanks for having me on, Josh. It's good Absolutely. to talk to you. Absolutely, man. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for, for, for joining me and taking a little bit of time. Hopefully, I'll have things to ask you that you haven't been asked a million times already, and this will be interesting to to uh, all the people that have, have, have read your stuff. Well, um, you seem like a, a pretty good question-asking guy, but I'll also say that, uh, and, and I'm sure that you experience this so well with your creative projects, like this one, Console Wars, is so important to me, and obviously I've worked on it for 10 years now in various forms, so uh, of all the projects I've worked on, it's the one I certainly don't mind being asked questions that I've been asked before or similar because I just love talking about it. It really changed my life, which I'm sure we'll get into. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's really cool to hear, man. Um, yeah, what am, what am I? Well, before we even get to that, first and foremost, and I mean this entirely from a personal preference perspective, Sega or Nintendo? Uh, um, definitely Team Sega. Definitely Team Sega. Okay, cool, cool. What was your first home console? Uh, I, am, I was born in 1982. So uh, my first console was the 8-bit Nintendo Entertainment System that my brother and I got for Hanukkah slash Christmas, probably in like 88 or 89. And uh, it was the coolest thing in the world. So I, you know, <laughs> I, even though I'm uh, very proudly <laughs> and explicitly Team Sega, uh, it's not because I don't like Nintendo. I love Nintendo. And, uh, you know, I've, I've owned uh, probably at this point, I've owned all the consoles, you know, some of them I bought years later as an adult. But uh yeah, uh, the NES was what got me into gaming, particularly Super Mario Bros. 3 and Legend of Zelda. And then when my brother and I desperately wanted a Super Nintendo, like most kids that love their Nintendo, my parents uh, would not get that for us uh, because it was not backwardly compatible. <laughs> yeah, that, that was one of the gripes that, that I think... Uh... Was, yeah. was, was part of the times for sure uh, yeah. parents not understanding the difference <laughs> yeah. uh, that's cool I'm, I'm super close as far as timeline goes. I was born in 81 and okay. uh, I did have a hand-me-down 2600 that was a predecessor wow. and it actually kept me for that reason actually it kept me I didn't get my Nintendo until pretty late uh, I was in fourth grade so it would have been probably actually late 89 I think as well um, so not too far off from you but I think that's late by general standards for both yeah. of us actually so what were you playing like as a young kid like what were you playing at that point with on the atari the 2600 i i had a again because it was a hand-me-down yeah. and and it was so late in that system's lifespan that i got i mean even when i first got it, and i had you know i have the i re, re i call them childhood reclamation projects where i get all the things i've had as a kid and i'm doing pretty good <laughs> on collecting on that front but i had gotten rid of all of it at once at one time or another growing up like a moron but anyways uh i had the you know the heavy the heavy sixer deal for the 2600 uh so the old you know wood grain deal and uh a whole 
bunch of games, man. So I mean, I had you know I had all the the, the stalwarts, the the, the Pac Mans, all the all, all the okay Moon Patrol, Jungle Hunt, uh, the Activision titles, which you know is, is why yeah. I've been so keen on speaking to all those guys in, in, in some uh, previous interviews. Uh, you know, the Activision games were just amazing, man. I used to sit and play. My mom and I used to sit and play River Raid for hours. You know, uh, yeah. River River Raid, Chopper Command, Pitfall, Keystone Capers. Uh, a lot of those Activision games are just incredible. You know. So. Yep. Yep. So yeah, so I had that for a while, but yeah, I got my Nintendo and, and did the Nintendo thing first, and and similarly also Sega minded, despite that fact. Uh, at least from from this era, the 16-bit era specifically, uh, I, I did change over to Sega, and 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 it, I hold it much dearer to my heart than than that Super Nintendo stuff from, from that era. You know, so it's <laughs> it's funny that we have that that overlap there. Yeah, uh, and otherwise, I mean, since I've and I mentioned this in the email, but since I've been. You know, I, I jumped back on Nintendo for 64 and beyond. I had a GameCube. I had a Wii. I have a Switch now. Like, I, I've always otherwise been Nintendo-minded. So it's so funny to me that the Sega was able to, or the Genesis, rather, was able to wrestle my attention away at that one particular yeah. time. I mean, I literally, right before this call, was uh, playing Mario 35 on my Switch. So yeah, I, uh, I haven't got it yet. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, it's awesome. I it's highly it. recommend it. Yeah. Is it? Yeah, I, I like that, that rehash stuff, man. The re-release stuff. It, part of this is my snobby filmmaker mindset towards <laughs> rehashes and reboots and stuff too. So that's part of that. But I just, I have a, such a hard time convincing myself to give them money for them to give me the same thing again. <laughs> well, that's actually a really valid and interesting conversation. But it's free, so don't worry. <laughs> oh well, it, yeah, it's a part of. The, see, I don't have the. They, they, uh, they have not got me to bite on the. The, the the subscription thing. I hate the subscription. Oh, thing. so maybe I guess it comes with the subscription. I didn't right. realize that. But uh, yeah. yeah, I understand which is, that. Which is not smart because I I have bought Mario Maker two and that app you can't even play it. Like I had a I had a trial subscription for a super long time because Amazon Prime and it's just I mean I'll get it eventually. It's just a matter I haven't done the work of punching in my information on there is really why I don't have it. But <laughs> not not so much from a, like a principal standpoint. But uh, yeah, like Mario Maker two you can't even it will not even function without the Nintendo online service, mm. you know? So yeah, they have a lot animal crossing is incredibly weaned down uh, as far as your functionality without it. So there's a bunch of things I'm just, I, I do need to get it. Cause I'm just, I've just been too lazy. Anyways, I, I digress. <laughs> so were you being from that area excites me a little bit. I thought you might be a little younger. So I was worried this wouldn't be the case, but <laughs> 82, I think you're in the right, right age bracket, man. Were you a regular reader of any of the game mags as a kid, Nintendo power or Sega visions or even cooler the 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 newsletter predecessors were you into any of that stuff regularly kid? i mean i would say i was like a regular wannabe reader like <laughs> for some reason uh you know my parents were really like generous and and uh you know typically would help my brother and i figure out how to afford or you know to help chip in for things that we wanted which is why the nintendo you know not being even interested in having the conversation about the nintendo Super Nintendo was kind of interesting, but again, that speaks to Nintendo's business decision and the backlash at that time. But like, no, I I would have loved to get Nintendo Power, but I felt like it was like this like really, this un, unreachable thing, though. In hindsight, <laughs> ridiculous because it was it's like sixteen bucks. Um, but so like I you know my friends I remember going that's to, like, a, that's a lot of newspapers delivered when you're a kid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I even get I was Illustrated for Kids was the only magazine I was able to get. And ah, uh, I had that too. I had uh, that too. The, the cards, the yeah. tear out cards in it were amazing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was the best part. But, uh, uh, 
Yeah, there's no tear out cards in the Nintendo Power. There was sometimes tear out posters, but like it was like uh, it was like uh, you know the Bible, like you know, <laughs> uh, twelve times a year. It was awesome. I, I did so I never was a subscriber, but I coveted it and would spend you know hours looking at it at friends' houses that had Nintendo Power. I thought it was super cool. Yeah, they uh, the story I always tell about this. I I didn't get it until. Uh, the Super Mario 3 issue was my first, the first, okay. I, I, for, for one year as a subscriber as a kid, I got it as a gift for some whatever birthday or something. And, but I didn't have it the rest of the time. So, you know, that that's like a year and some change, maybe even a little more into their, into their run. And the school library did have it. So before I had my subscription, I used to go into the library at school when we get, you know, whatever, however that system function where we would go in there once a week for a couple of an hour or something uh, I would go in there and just try to monopolize one of those issues and sit alone in a corner and just go through them you know and try That's to like awesome. write things write things down and like they were like the, you know the kids basically there was only 12 issues or whatever yeah. it was and there's you know one class of kids is 30 kids so you know there's it was always a war to get your hands on sure. one sure and, and claim well, well it's funny end. you say that because w- our, my school didn't have a uh, Nintendo Power but they did have Sports Illustrated for kids and <laughs> once we realized that they had the cards in there it became like a whole issue and I think they had to have like a meeting because <laughs> the Sports Illustrated for kids and then taking out the cards and like, the library's like no that's part of the issue like you're stealing from the, the library <laughs> yeah, um, totally. yeah, yeah so there's kids savage. <laughs> that's funny what about what about GamePro for a little impartiality? Where, where did you have a journalistic uh, mindset even as a small child, where you wanted to hear non-proprietary viewpoints on these things? Uh, or? I would have loved to. I didn't even know it existed. I guess is really now that I think about it. Like I, I, I don't even. I barely knew about Sega Visions. Like I probably didn't even realize that it was a magazine at the time. So maybe we're the same age. Maybe I'm just very oblivious. Uh, but like. Um, yeah, uh, you know, the, I might sound especially oblivious to younger listeners, but in the world pre-internet, it was often hard to know what existed beyond what you experienced <laughs> on a you know daily sure. basis. Yeah, it didn't so, just show up in your feed on your phone. That's not yeah. how you, no one told you about things. You had to go hunting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like as I was working on the book and going through those old issues of Game Pro and Sega Visions, like I would have loved to have all that. I love print media still. Um, obviously, <laughs> and uh, you know, it was one of the few subjects I actually cared about at the time. So I would have <laughs> loved to have been a reader back then. Cool, cool. Favorite eight or sixteen bit console Sega game? Did you? Yeah, you, you kind of mentioned not jumping over to Sega until Genesis. Did you have any exposure or dabbling with the Master System before that, or was that something? And, and you know, to be totally like, transparent, bare- I didn't. I, yeah, I didn't even know. I mean, it was like a. The idea of ha- a kid having that was weird, like a weird kid. You had to be a weird kid. <laughs> yeah, it was unusual. Uh, yeah. I had a babysitter that had it, and I would, uh, you know, sometimes went to his house, which I guess is kind of backward. But he lived two houses down since, you know, he's supposed to be babysitting me. But, uh, but yeah, I, like I, I really liked the Alex Kid games okay. at, at the time. Uh, it's not, it's nothing that I play anymore. Um, so it didn't stack up. Uh, so I guess I would say uh, any of the Alex Kid games would have been my favorite back then. Um, and then in terms of 16-bit, um, it's definitely NHL 94 is my okay. probably all-time favorite game. And I like it even more than the Sonic games. Okay. What about you? What's your favorite uh, Sega game? I, I'm a, I really love RPGs. I, if I had to say my favorite Sega game, I'd probably say the Dungeons & Dragons. Mm-hmm. 
Warriors of the Eternal Sun is probably my all-time favorite, just because of the whole the presentation of it, the hint book, like everything about it is just I don't yeah. know, so immersive and such a good job, um, and 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 being predisposed towards RPGs. But yeah, I, I love the sports games too, man. I mean, my I had I bought Madden '92 from yeah. Video Game Exchange before I had gotten my Genesis for Christmas. Like I, you know, I had, I had a pretty good idea that I was getting it. And I traded in my old Nintendo game, the Nintendo games that I had, NES games, which makes my skin crawl that I did this, and for a used <laughs> a used copy of Madden 92 before I even had the Genesis. So that was my, you know, level of enthusiasm for, That's for awesome. those, those EA sports games on Genesis for sure. Um, yeah. I, I like NH, I like the original NHL a little more than 94, which I know is a, maybe a little not the norm, uh, but yeah. I think the NHL games I think are great. Unusual. I think most people all seem to prefer the 94, but they're all. Like you're talking about like NHLPA '93, that one? No, no, the the oh before it, that even. Yeah, the original NHL. There was the, the NHL, the NHLPA was '93, basically. Uh, okay. Then, yeah. I mean, I liked all of them, so I I I, I don't blame you. Um, <laughs> I thought all those games were. I, I always liked high, like playing hockey games more than I liked watching the sport, which is you know the only sport I could say that about. Um, yeah, I'm the same way. I I am not a big hockey fan of like watching it, consuming yeah. that the the real the actual sport but hockey games have always been great like nhl breakaway 98 on 64 is one of my favorite games of all time too and yeah it, that was really good yeah i forgot about that that was a great game yeah yeah uh, i guess on that same time mutant league football and hockey were great too on, yeah. on yeah those were really fun and weird and quirky yeah. okay so same thing for nintendo you already you already mentioned super mario 3 and what was the other one uh, on a legend of zelda legend. Staples. staples. Think. Yeah. Give, give, me, give me something a little more unique that's outside the box. A title you might have um, had that um, didn't have that I had that. back then. That so if if you'd asked me back in like 1992, if you know you were interviewing me, if you were interviewing 10 year old Blake, what's my favorite game? I probably <laughs> would have said, uh, and it's still a favorite. I probably would have said Bubble Bobble is my favorite. Okay. Uh, I guess like as you're. So you're have you beaten all 100 10, levels in Bubble Bobble? Never, not as a kid. <laughs> I, did, I did as an adult. I did guess you? one of my childhood reclamation <laughs> vengeance projects um to use your parlance with a added twist uh yeah i mean i guess uh, i'm realizing like all, all my favorite stuff or the stuff i played the most was the two-player stuff which was not you know not all the games but stuff that you could actually play at the same time even two-player like did you have you say you have siblings or no uh, yeah i had a younger brother it was like the only thing that we could do together without fighting sometimes yeah Everything, yeah we'd fight over yeah, I, I also have three years younger brother, and yeah, couch co-op games to this day are still, uh, you know, yeah. my, my favorite things because there's there's some you know I was actually arguing with Jay on the the other podcast host on, on the pod about this. He's he's a very you know he plays a lot of online stuff with the on the Xbox mm-hmm. now, and I'm just I don't know it's just to me it's it's I I hate online things like that i the idea of couch co-op and kind of just the person-to-person interfacing that happens in that multiplayer context is so much more interesting to me than even talking to someone on a headset or any any of the modern gaming stuff i just i just i can't get into it you know yeah i feel the same way but it's it's almost definitely generational like i feel like we're just we're just we're the weird ones here (laughs) well he's he's our same age (laughs) so he's just Uh, well maybe he's just young at heart (laughs) i mean i still find anything internet related a little bit like, like I'm always nervous. Like, well, what if the power goes out? What if we use Wi-Fi? <laughs> yeah. And everyone's like, dude, like we live, <laughs> we've had Wi-Fi for years. But I still like, pref- you know, I don't anymore. But like, I always prefer DVDs. I liked having physical media just in case. And you know. <laughs> just in case is such a good reason. <laughs> yeah. The zero times I've ever needed it in my life, but just in case. 
<laughs> just being able to hold things is nice. The idea that is true. I do miss that. Uh, like you said about the magazines, it's cool. It's a, just a cool, I don't know, a cooler experience, a, a more tactile experience. All right. So uh, yeah, I was, you kind of, we touched on a little bit already, but I, yeah, I didn't know prior to doing my homework before we jumped on here. Uh, I was pleasantly surprised to learn that you had filmmaking in your background prior to the console wars stuff. So I presume that experience had a heavy hand in initiating and seeing the on-screen iteration of that through. Like, yeah, how did that, you know? Yeah, that's, that's a fair assessment. I mean, I had many years of filmmaking experience that I'll talk about in a second, but I've definitely described it as like failed filmmaking experience, like not very <laughs> successful. Uh, but basically I graduated school in uh, 2005. I knew I wanted to be a writer, a writer, maybe also a filmmaker, but definitely you know, I thought I was going to write the great American novel. Um, and then I got a day job or I got a job uh, trading Brazilian um, trading uh, commodities for Brazilian clients like sugar and coffee and soybeans. And uh, I did that as a day job for from age 22 to age 30. And then after hours, which was not, you know, the hours were like 630 to 230. So I got out there pretty early. I would spend doing screenwriting or I produced a couple of things. I produced a feature-length mockumentary, which I sunk my entire film school money into. I produced a spec TV pilot. Um, and so I was always, you know, I like I like actually making things. And I also was interested in storytelling and, and the film, you know, the filmmaking is pretty awesome. Uh, very hard industry, as you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, like... Uh, that's that was always something that was on my mind as I started working on Council Wars and you know doing the research and doing the interviews. Uh, in the best case scenario, I was hoping it could be a book, a documentary, and also a movie, like like The Social Network at the time was what I was thinking. And now I think uh, you know a TV series is where it's headed, and it would be it would work better in that format. Uh, yeah. Cool, man. That's that's cool. That you have that. I don't know. Yeah, it's filmmaking one on one these days is, is is often predicated on you know the the understanding of like making the thing work in a million different formats and 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 kind of having this uh, not not unfocused but you know kind of just a very open ended idea about what it could become with so many possibilities being there these days as opposed to you know a very focused approach of like this is going to be a feature film or this is going to be a book right. you know like the idea uh, of understanding that all these medias kind of are just overlapping these days is, is that's a very true. that's a good observation and i and i would i would give you know i'd give you credit for that observation and also make i would echo that to you know any aspiring filmmakers out there though in my case i i feel like i fell into that a bit because from is i guess a long-winded way of saying it, i think it's a lot easier to think that way with nonfiction. you know because if i'm interviewing people and getting their stories you know i i know as long as i'm the master of the story i can sort of figure out or start to figure out how it could work in other formats. Whereas it's probably, uh, you know, more ambitious or more difficult to break the story when it's, you know, a, a fictional piece. Sure. Uh, Cause it's predicated on, on those mediums more. Sure. And, you know, and one of the beauties of nonfiction too, is, is you have a built in audience just inherently, as opposed to just telling a story, you're telling someone's story and someone, totally if, you, if you find a subject that someone cares about, you don't need to sell them on the idea that your story is interesting. They already know the story is interesting. So <laughs> totally. You know, yeah. Nonfiction has that merit and that's a reason I would love to do more of it. And I guess I do work mostly in narrative and it's fucking harder, man. <laughs> it's way harder. Yeah. 
It's tough. Uh, I mean, it's tough with anything these days. But, you know, I'm also very conscious of the fact that as, you know, successful as I've been with console wars, it's a lot of it is because, one, the subject matter, like you said, a lot of people have a connection to Sega or Nintendo, uh, memories of Sega and Nintendo, and then, of course, the story itself. Which you know, I didn't, I didn't make up. It was very <laughs> and secondly, you know, Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg were great partners, and they have a built-in audience. And so there's a lot of, uh, you know, things falling into place and being. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very fortunate that it did fall that way. Cool, man. Yeah, I mean, that was my next question. How did it get on the radar of Point Grey Pictures? Did I mean, did you and your agent go out and beat the bushes to make it happen, or did they approach you off the book, or how? Did, how you know, oh yeah, talk, yeah. talking about the process. Of so the it happened before the book, and so they definitely didn't approach me because remember uh, back then in uh, twenty, you know, late twenty eleven, when I'm working on console wars, I'm interviewing these people from Sega and Nintendo. I'm sort of putting the story together. Uh, I have a book proposal, maybe done at that point. Um, and and basically, I, w- I would credit the Sega story for inspiring me. You know, uh, in addition to being uh, a compelling narrative, it's also just like an incredible case study, for lack of a better phrase, like you know of of how an underdog entity can you know be successful and and compete against uh, more known quantities like Nintendo. And one of the things that Sega did really well was uh, you know align themselves with young celebrities that sort of had the same tone and vision that they did and that uh were accessible and and i didn't i definitely didn't think that point gray would be accessible um but i suggested to my manager that uh they would be the perfect partner for uh you know adapting console wars or because you know, they'd be the perfect partner for just about anything <laughs> well, right. that is true. but the fact that they even were willing to take the meeting it sure. says you know nothing about me but everything about the subject matter like they were you know like and I think it says a lot about them too that like I was a no name person and they were still willing to meet with me and talk about it just because they liked the idea. So I like that about them that they were, you know, that their idea focused. And so I met with them in January of 2012. And I remember the date, January 6th, because it was like life changing. I had, you know, I took off a couple of days from my finance job and flew to LA and met with Seth and Evan. And uh, the meeting lasted nearly two hours, which was incredible. Uh, they had that much time, they had that much enthusiasm and that much questions. And a lot of it too was us just swapping stories like you and I did for the you know first 20 minutes of just favorite games and you know like you know we were talking about how we were all kids during this we didn't realize what was going on behind the scenes we didn't realize that you know the lack of backwards compatibility was a decision that a business (laughs) decision then like you know that's ultimately what swayed me to team sega not because nintendo like failed in developing games but if anything they failed with uh you know uh marketing that because it really wasn't all that difficult to comprehend the fact that (laughs) new system wasn't backwards compatible um which I still just find so funny. It's almost as if the way my parents viewed uh, the Super Nintendo was that like you had to give up your regular Nintendo. Like you know, <laughs> you, you still had the old system. The game still worked on that old system. It wasn't like someone came to your home and was like, no, no <laughs> Conf- more. Yeah, confiscated it. Yeah, give me this. <laughs> <laughs> well, like it was definitely perceived that way. Like, oh, now you'll never be able to play Mario Brothers Three again. Right. But anyway. Um, yeah, and so I met with Seth and Evan. Uh, I also, in uh, the meeting was uh, my co-director Jonah, who I had been a screenwriting partner with and worked together for a long time. And we uh, talked to them about these projects uh, derived from console wars, uh, doing this book and a documentary and a feature film. And to our surprise and delight, they were interested in doing all three. And uh, it's been a long journey to each phase of the project, um, which is you know, the way that it happens when it happens at all. 
Yeah. Um, Especially then, at that yeah, level, for sure, things take yeah. a while, man. <laughs> and so I wrote the book, and that was most, you know, almost entirely in my control. And then we were doing this documentary, and there's a lot of, you know, like you said, it's a high level partners that we're working with, and uh, we certainly, you know, want to work around their schedule because their input is, in our opinion part of what makes it special and then uh yeah we finished the doc and that came out it was supposed to premiere at south by southwest which didn't happen and it was a bummer but it's uh out on cbs all access now and cbs all access is like the first company i've ever worked with that does really good marketing in my opinion uh that i've worked with so it's not like an indictment of all marketing just, uh, <laughs> nowadays uh, a lot of companies uh they have uh, a lot of a lot of projects, understandable. You know, it's a quantity game in some ways. But CBS All Access has done an awesome job, and uh, and it's very cool to have that out now. Awesome, yeah. man. Very cool. Okay, well, uh, turning attention to the book, what was the exact catalyst for starting that? Even if it's you know, even not even maybe. I don't know. You said it was. You kind of had this idea of it being a cross-platform idea, but yeah. I presume the research was originally targeted in the form of implementing in, in, a, in a written in a, in a written book form. Even though you maybe had an idea that this could work across different mediums, um, and, and if that's the case, what was the catalyst for starting that research for the book? Like, even if you could tell me what I, you know, I love to say, uh, talking to a lot of those game makers and and and, and you know the guys that came up with character stuff for transformers and gi joe and stuff like you know it's really cool to hear like the seed idea the moment you know right. in the, the moment in the shower where you're like holy shit that's a great idea <laughs> you know like do you, do you have a specific moment like that that you could cite or was it more of like a, a slow burn kind of thing uh for for me i f i feel like a lot of the creative projects are slow burns with key moments Though actually, for my <laughs> the current book I'm working on, it literally happened in the shower, and <laughs> but, you know, that was like tar man, nothing to do in there. Uh, I've started taking my phone in to listen to podcasts in there, and it's fucking that <laughs> up a little bit. But before I started doing that, I and mean, there's nothing to do in there, man. <laughs> yeah, but I, I was like in the shower, and I was like, I would, I really want to write a book about Larry David, and then I was like, wow, I, like how did I, I just had the thought in the shower, like they do in TV shows. Um, but uh, <laughs> like for me, it was more. Uh, my brother got me a Sega Genesis for my birthday in 2010, and um, I started playing. I actually was playing NHL '94, and uh, and and just and just generally around replaying Sonic 2 and these games that I had bought on eBay. I was uh, oh, so he, he bought you he bought you the old system as a birthday present. That's really cool. Yeah. Man. That's a cool birthday yeah, gift. Yeah, he bought. So that was like definitely a catalyst without my realizing it, because you know he, I was just thinking it would be fun to play, but then I was. Uh, you know, not a specific moment, but my favorite books to read then and now are behind the scenes business stories, like nonfiction stories. And so that just made me want to learn more about Sega and also Nintendo and Sega versus Nintendo. And uh, like at that point, I genuinely would have thought that a book like Console Wars already existed. Actually, I would have thought that like several of them did. Like I thought it was like this is this big deal that, you know, there would be a lot of books about it. And so uh, I remember going to Barnes and Noble on 86th Street in Manhattan and uh, looking for the video game history section beside the film history and the music history section and discovering that no such section existed in the bookstore. <laughs> and uh, yeah, asking the woman at the information desk like where that section was and basically being laughed at and then just asking for, um, you know, I was like, I think I said like one of the books on Sega or Nintendo. And 
you know, uh, this is my first time ever going to a, <laughs> a bookstore and going to the information desk where they didn't try to order something for you. You know, usually they're like, oh, we don't have that, but we can order it. And then you think, oh, yeah, well, I can order it too. So don't worry. <laughs> well, well, I was like, say, like, part of the significance of the story you're telling is that you didn't just stay home and type this into your computer. <laughs> yeah. no, it, was, uh, it was 2010. Right. So it was a little bit different back then. But, um, and I liked going to the bookstore, but I was just like, I was surprised that they didn't have a book like that, that there wasn't even a book that they at least could easily look up to be like, oh, well, that, you know, like, so it seemed, it seemed odd to me. It wasn't like I left the bookstore that day thinking like, oh, there's this demand that I'm going to, you know, supply. But that was largely what, like, where my brain was headed of just in terms of like, well, that's just very weird. Like, why, why is there not a book about that? That seemed like it'd be a good subject matter. It seemed like there was probably a lot going on behind the scenes. And then I found a few books um, about the game industry. Um, there, there were not all that many, but there were some really good ones, like David Sheff's book Game Over and Stephen Kent's Ultimate History of Video Games. And David Sheff's Game Over in particular, it was like more in the style that I like, where it's character-driven, uh, you feel like you're kind of there with the people. And that was largely about you know the history of Nintendo and the resurrection of the game industry in the United States. And that book ended with like, you know, there's this scrappy young company, Sega on the horizon, but who knows what that will bring. And, you know, there's this thing called the World Wide web that's coming. So like, and multi <laughs> multimedia was a big buzzword in that book, which I remember yeah. from the time. <laughs> yeah. um, so slightly, I, I did, so uh, slightly, slightly dated perspective. <laughs> yeah. So I, 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 in a way I did sort of see my book as like a sequel to David chef's book, uh, a little bit, you know, uh, different style a bit but like i felt like i felt like he was getting to the more interesting part of the story and then the book stopped um and uh and then when i actually started um you know at that point i was very interested in <laughs> writing a book myself or at least learning the story and i started uh, uh reaching out or uh, contacting former sega nintendo employees on linkedin um because i <laughs> knew no other way to do it and also like i didn't like you know i had a very unimpressive resume writing wise at that point i had no bylines i never wrote for any outlet so i was basically just telling them hey i'm a failed screenwriter who's you know made a few things and i'm really interested in writing about this and it was uh you know most people said no or ignored me which was you know understandable and expected and a good experience to go through but enough people said yes that i was able to keep talking to more people and more people and then you know by the end i was able to speak with all the people i wanted with a few exceptions yeah just track, um, tracking that first one is, is the big thing you know just like getting one sure. of them to talk to you and you can go i talked to da 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 and they're like all right fine <laughs> for sure yeah for sure and like and i truly don't blame them for that because i've been in that other side of that too and like yeah. you know yeah, I mean, no I, emailed one... you for the, I emailed you for this, Blake. Yeah, I'm sure there was a moment like, yeah. what the fuck is this? <laughs> yeah, so, uh, and uh, getting used to hearing people say no was a good experience. And then eventually, uh, I guess, like, the most, the, the point that stands out to me as, like, the most crystallized of, like, oh, I, like, I'm going to make, I'm ex going to write a book about this was my first conversation with Tom Kalinske, who's the you know central protagonist of the book and largely of the documentary as well. He was the CEO of Sega of America from 1990 to 96 when Sega went from 5% of the market to 55% and then started to go back down. And, uh, you know, I, I spoke to him for two hours the first time. The first half of our call was not even anything about Sega. It was about his career prior to Sega. 
And, you know, he's telling me about how he helped develop the Flintstones chewable vitamins and He-Man Masters of the Universe and Resurrect Barbie at Mattel and worked on Matchbox Cars. And I was just like, oh, my God, like, like this is this is a book itself, even before the Sega stuff. And then we started talking about the Sega stuff and in particular, just the way that he ended up getting hired by Sega uh, when he was on uh, family vacation in Hawaii and was unexpectedly approached by Hayao Nakayama, the CEO of Sega Enterprises in Japan and offered this job and i just felt like that that's like an opening to a movie that's like or an opening to a book and uh and by the end of that conversation i was like very giddy about telling the story and like very uh, excited to make the commitment to spend however many years it would take to getting the full story and, and putting it out there awesome man awesome Okay. Uh, so in that, you just checked off a bunch of my next questions in there. So good, good, <laughs> good, good, good anticipatory job, Blake. Nice. <laughs> All right. So on the pod itself, yeah, the, 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 you know, we're 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 talking uh, um, uh, four here. We've mostly worked our way through the full like gamut of of Sega's U.S. eight bit offerings uh, mm-hmm. efforts, and there's just you know there's so many glaring fails in their in their choices in that time period the lack of courting third-party developer support the god-awful right. box art the tonka debacle etc cetera, etc cetera. Yeah. can you speak to your perceived shortcomings of their pre-kalinsky u.s decisions or i mean if you disagree with with that viewpoint i mean you can incinerate my accusation oh, the same. But... <laughs> i mean like that's kind of the nice thing too when there's a big enough sample size and there's metrics to to back up these opinions because i guess they are still opinions but like <laughs> it'd be really hard to make the case that sega was successful in the 8-bit era in the united states and like similarly you know um my book focuses largely on sega of america as does the documentary and uh spoiler alert like I, you know both the book and the documentary largely suggest that sega of japan was the reason for sega's downfall or at least their exit from the console business and that could you know that's also a matter of perspective, but it was always uh, reassuring to me that like I had actual data from the years of what was being sold in Japan, what was being sold in America, and seeing how much better America was doing. And in this case too, like seeing how unsuccessful Sega slash Tonka was with the Master System, it seems pretty indisputable that they did <laughs> that it was you know a big disappointment. Agreed. But like I said, I thought it was weird to have one. I mean that you know that clearly I'm just one child in that little cross section of data, but I mean the fact that that perception could even exist i think is its own little mini demonstration of the fail (laughs) and so uh i mean unsurprisingly given the focus of my book part of it i would say is marketing like uh again i could just be an oblivious child like it didn't even occur to me that like nintendo and these other video game companies were like different like if i probably would have just guessed like oh nintendo makes this other thing because to me nintendo meant video games so you know, I didn't know that like Sega was a separate, discrete thing. I didn't really understand what that meant, uh, which I think is part of why the Sega does what Nintendo campaign was successful, which also is, uh, you know, partly preceded Kalinsky. So that was them sort of evolving um, even even before he got there. Um, and then I think that not having that, you know, that killer, that, you know, killer bundled title or just killer title uh like when you asked me my favorite game there was nothing that even comes to mind years later it's like oh yeah i loved playing this game um they, they, made, uh, they made their efforts but you know the alex kid was one and the i always mix up what's the other the other big uh not, not, after uh, well afterburner was a big arc they had a bunch of their arcade ports that's a given because it's sega but no there was what was the other mascot the failed mascot deal 
we we played Miracle. Oh, this is a dumb tangent. Don't worry about it. Sorry right. to interrupt. <laughs> no. Problem. Uh, yeah. Okay. So you agree then, basically, with their uh, on the on the back side. I, I guess I would also say that um, uh, one way to look at one thing that always stuck out to me is. Why, uh, the question I get asked the most, or the question that I was sort of trying to answer with my book is like, why did Sega fail? And by fail, I just mean exit the hardware business because they're obviously a successful software company largely living off of the IP of Sonic. But, um, and and like, it, it, uh, I believe it's largely because of this uh, schism between Sega of America and Sega of Japan. And there was something that Al Nilsson told me about his experience of going to Japan in 1996 right after the release of Saturn. Uh, so maybe it was late 95. And at Sega of Japan, they had the mentality that they voiced explicitly that said, uh, if it works here, why doesn't it work there? Which is, to me, like the epitome of not trying to understand your audience, but just sort of like trying to inflict what you want them to like, which actually happens a lot now uh, with social media platforms and other things. But that's a tangent. But so I feel like whether it was with arcade games and Sega decision makers just the like well it's a great arcade game it should just be a great console game like who cares what people are saying that's just how it is <laughs> right. or similarly with a lot of the more uh bizarre to those of us in the u.s titles that maybe were popular in japan or popular arcade games uh you know the taka partnership and their product development slate did not lend itself to trying to appeal to uh, an american demographic or at least someone my age at that time so, like, you know, I don't know why they weren't focused on that, but they certainly took that for granted. Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, I was going to, the next question I was going to ask was, you know, how would you describe that slip into irrelevancy? And I mean, there's there's the speculation of the self cannibalization with the 32X and the Sega CD and da 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 da, da uh, is, is, is sometimes, you know, quoted as like sending this, this, the 16 bit era into a little, the tank a little bit earlier than it probably had to be. And then obviously there was the overlap with that and the, the next console generation. There's, there's all that stuff. So, I mean, I, I think you kind of have a better summated version of it there, though, with uh, just a general principle problem. You know, what I, mean? I think. That's I think that in hindsight, it's a lot easier to look at uh, side quests like the 32X or Sega CD or Pico or Nomad or any of that stuff as as contributing to their failure more so than it actually was or than it felt. I think that more so than it actually was like maybe a good comp. Uh, you could tell me if you think this is totally wrong is like um, like I, I would think almost like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, like as long as the films are kicking butt the stuff that they're trying with television shows and online, like whether it works or not, and it tends to often work, is like, it's not going to be the downfall. But if their movies start to go badly, then I feel like people would say, oh, they're spending all this money on TV, they're doing this, and it's really not, though. It's more like, I guess it's a long way of saying, I feel like as long as you nail the console, then you kind of have a lot of leeway to try things and and experiment, et cetera. Yeah, I'm trying to think of there's this very specific business terminology that is evading me right now that I wish I could think of that is exactly what you're describing there. Well, yeah, it's definitely <laughs> that. that term. Yeah. yeah. Um, that thing I learned in finance back in college and I just can't remember now. Right. <laughs> it doesn't make 32x a good decision, but like it makes it more palatable um sure. and and not as much as significant as it might seem in retrospect. Right. And Doom was okay on it. <laughs> yeah. I don't think John Carmack would agree with 
that statement. But. <laughs> yeah, no, he definitely, he definitely wouldn't. But comparatively, uh, it was playable at least. And if you were a kid without a PC, you know that was right. some route to it was very important to you at that time. But uh, not to suggest I didn't have a 32x, but I mean it was appealing to me and, and uh, the idea of it having that. And it's console. also, I mean, I, I I hate the idea of saying stuff like ahead of its time because part of coming up with the ideas, you know being time specific so it makes it sound like you're almost like a tragic figure but like i do think that tom kalinsky's approach to being you know uh offering different tiers of products like the 32x or the nomad and you know some of those were not really his decision some of them were forced upon him but some of them certainly were like pico and you can make the case like oh why were they getting into kids game you know kids play things but i think that like that you know against the back backdrop of what I described earlier of my parents not wanting to get a Super Nintendo because it was like confusing because it was this whole other thing. Like I feel like nowadays with DLC and, you know, basically different tiers to how much you want to invest in a certain, you know, subset of a of a system or of a game, I feel like that 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 it was, you know, that kind of thinking would probably do better nowadays than it sure, did back sure. then. Yeah ps4 vr and then you have to buy the same game again for ps vr like it's a huge right. financial suckle but if you buy into it you spend the money <laughs> so yeah it's right. not it's not terrible if it works as with all things you know so uh cool man all right well uh, of, of all the things you stumbled into doing research about these two companies what's one nugget you about each that you found most surprising interesting whatever adjective of significance you want to go with there uh and you know i mean i mean you know, part of me is kind of searching for like something that didn't quite make it into the book you know because maybe it just didn't fit in whatever for whatever reason maybe it got edited out whatever it might be just maybe a, a a quirky interesting little anecdote about either company that um you know didn't make it in or even if it did just that maybe would get glossed over in in uh in the, in sure. the big picture yeah i mean uh I'm trying to think and buy some time as I talk, but I'll, but yeah. I'll say like, you know, of there's only been a, a few projects I've worked on where every day I was happy to wake up and work on it, and largely that was because I found out new stuff every day. Not necessarily like oh game stuff that many people would care about, but like, uh, like one thing that I always loved that was not in the book or the documentary was like Al Nilsson's relationship with Michael Jackson. Al Nilsson is one of the main characters in both the book and the documentary. He was you know one of the marketing gurus at Sega he's also just an incredible guy and uh but he's he's sort of childlike in in his worldview uh, in in the most complimentary way i mean that uh you know like seeing the joy in things and able to speak the language of kids which is what Sega needed at times and he had this weird bond with Michael Jackson who i think also possesses those qualities or or you know that was part of his personality <laughs> um maybe a maybe For dangerous sure. part of his personality sure. even um but like they, it, they had it's, a really its own documentary and book in of itself. <laughs> yeah, and like, yeah. like, but Al and Michael, I, you know, forgetting, I can only speak specific to the, Michael's involvement with Sega and game making, not his, you know, personal activities and all that, which sounds, you know, potentially reprehensible. Uh, but Al and Michael did have a really special bond, and I always really liked that. Um, and obviously, Michael had the Moonwalker game uh, back in the late '80s, um, and then which was a one cool, thing that quirky I, title. Yeah, and and yeah, that was a great title, and uh, and uh, it, it was not in the documentary. It's in the book, but probably not to the degree I maybe would have done. But just like Michael's involvement with uh, with Sonic the Hedgehog three, and Sonic and Knuckles, like I feel like there's a lot of rumors about whether he was involved, and there's like those 
that those don't need to be rumors that is, and stuff right like yeah. that is absolutely true <clears throat> if not for the allegations uh of impropriety in 93 i believe like he would have been a central part of the marketing for sonic 3 uh the knuckles character was based on him like personality wise and look to a degree um so that that, you know there's a lot of fun facts like that that didn't that are very fascinating on their own right and but didn't make it into the documentary because it's 90 minutes and you know either were mentioned briefly in the book or didn't make it just because it didn't you know move the central narrative along but were very fascinating yeah that's pretty yeah the you know we we go we started with with the podcast we started with those newsletter predecessors to the magazine, Sega Visions, Nintendo Power, so Nintendo Fun Club News, and then yeah. you know, the Team Sega newsletter. It's actually it changed names a bunch of times over only seven issues, which is its own marketing fail about that era for Sega. <laughs> but anyways, right. there, there is, you know, I, I want to say is issue two or three of that Sega newsletter, they get into the whole moment, which I knew of getting to that part in our little magazine timeline because of your book, thankfully, and, and knowing that he did that, you know, where the day where he toured the, yeah, the Sega yeah. offices and that how that whole relationship started and I, I knew a little bit about it and they you know they touched on that when he visited there's of course a picture I believe if I recall correctly in like the letter from the editor opening of, of that issue and you know uh, just a little like a thing that I, I would it, it's I don't know if it's like a narrative short idea it's just like this elusive evasive kind of uh little story idea like it would be an incredible little short film to like you know <laughs> that that day of him at the office like is how riveting of that would be to god forbid to have like documentary footage of it just like how amazing of a little story would that be to tell just that day of michael jackson at the sega office you know i think that That'd would be, be really such cool. a yeah a fascinating little little uh fly on the wall thing to see you know you, sh- you should get al nelson on the show and have him tell you the story of the night Maybe of the of the time of the day or trip that he spent, he went to Neverland Ranch to meet with Michael. That uh, would be great, yeah. That, that was another. Great. That was part of sort of this that special relationship that I really liked. Um, yeah, that's cool. Awesome, man. Well, you can make that uh, email intro when we get off here, Blake. <laughs> all right. <laughs> yeah. uh, all right. So, you know, I mean, that's pretty much it as far as I wanted to, to, to bug you about the project. Uh, I guess maybe just for 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 because I'm curious as well, actually, uh, pitch me and the prospective listener uh, the new Larry David project. <laughs> Oh, no, way too soon. Way too soon. <laughs> uh, if you don't like Larry David, I don't know what's wrong with you. You need that log line before you even start writing the thing, man. That's oh, right. No. One. Come on. Of course. <laughs> no, but it's like I, I feel like a very like when you when I think about when I think when I was writing stuff from Sega's perspective, I feel very much like a Sega person. And I'm like, I hate Nintendo and, and vice versa. <laughs> when you said Larry David, I feel like Larry's mentality where, you know, he said things publicly like uh when Seinfeld moved to Thursday and people are watching it, he's like, oh, if you weren't watching it uh, Wednesday, wh- why are you joining now? Like, uh, we don't need you. So I feel like uh, you know, if, you're, if you're not already a Larry David fan, first of all, I have no idea what's wrong with you. Second of all, um, no, he's, I mean, he's the best. Uh, but I guess really the, the, the short like log line pitch would be that we live in polarized times. And the one thing, one of the few things people can agree on, whether wherever you stand in the political aisle, wherever whatever age you are, is that Larry David is hilarious and a <laughs> national treasure. Yeah. And my love of him comes from a variety of ways, uh, you know, from a variety of things. But like as a writer myself, what I love most about him is that he's made this whole career and this reputation out of, you know, that he tell you know tell stories about the minutia of life, which he does, and he does better than anybody that I've you know, better than anyone alive. But the reason that I think that he's so 
talented and so successful is because he's just a masterful storyteller. Like as much as Seinfeld was a show about nothing, it was the most intensely structured and plotted and thought out story, uh, you know, the television show of that time period. Like that's something that um, I find incredibly fascinating, especially because most of the stories came from real life, real life examples of things that had happened to Larry or later to people on the staff. And then also just the way that he was able to get them all to work and to intersect. Um, I think he's the, you know, I, I think he's the best. He's personally a, a major hero in my life. So awesome. uh, it's been a dream project. That's cool. Yeah, very, very. I can't imagine just sitting down and having candid conversations with him would be, has got to be incredible. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's definitely surreal. I yeah. definitely have to to trick myself into not thinking how crazy it is when I'm talking to him. Yeah. I, I, I was, you know, a, a late arrival on, on curbed, you know, I didn't, I didn't watch for a long time and, and you know, the idea of it to me, it was like, you know, the kind of off the cuff improv based uh, style of it is, is so in my wheelhouse. I'm, sh- I'm, I'm kind of ashamed that I, I didn't get on board sooner. Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly ashamed for you. <laughs> When people think of Seinfeld, they think of oh, a show about nothing. And when they, people think of Curb, they think about improv. And those that makes sense that you'd think both those things. Like, But like, as much as the show is improv, and therefore like people like J.B. Smoove and Susie Essman and Jeff Garland and Larry to serve incredible credit for basically being writers of the show, of their characters, like the show is not like, hey, let's just figure it out as we go. It's all not based close. on meticulously written Larry or now Larry and Jeff Schaefer. And like those scripts are incredible, so it's it just helped me too. Like sometimes, um, you know, when you're a writer and you're becoming a writer, you don't realize how much story matters, especially when what we remember most from the stories we love, whether you know, typically movies, is like is dialogue, you know. But like the dialogue in Reservoir Dogs, that's awesome. That um, the opening scene, for example, only or not only, but it largely is awesome because of the circumstance, because of you know how it's being plotted and why it's existing at that time. So, you know, Larry's work has helped me realize that throughout my life, um, and maybe that's obvious to other people, but it was certainly like eye-opening for me in just in terms of seeing what makes stories work, what makes them fun, and then of course, like like I said, I think he's just one of the funniest people of all time. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Um, well, awesome, man. This was, I uh, really uh, appreciate you taking the time to, to chat about all this stuff. Sure thing. And I guess tell people that do listen to this where they can find your coming soons, just to be thorough. <laughs> um, I am on Twitter at Blake J. Harris NYC. And uh, if you have any questions about myself or my work, I try to answer them. And, uh, you know, I started, sort of started this podcast, or at least my personal narrative by talking about how this book that I wanted to read didn't exist. So I'm always really trying to help there be more video game books in the world. So if you have, if, 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 you know, if you're working on something and, and, you know, want a second opinion or just want some advice, I'm, I'm usually happy to talk to people. I've sent my book proposal to a lot of people to give them a sense of what a book proposal looks like. So anyway, yeah. And, uh, and then, uh, yeah, you should talk to Al Nelson. <laughs> you guys, he's a great storyteller. Uh, I'm down, man. I, I like storytellers and I like video games, so I think he'd probably be a good person to talk to. <laughs> <laughs> awesome, man. Well, thank you so much, Blake. Uh, really appreciate it, man.